Welcome to Freedom, and to those of you who are joining us online, we're always glad to have you be a part of worship in that way. Uh, we are currently in a series that we started uh, last Sunday that uh, is entitled So Much More. It's from the book of Ephesians, and if you've, uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to be in uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians, and if by chance you were not here last Sunday, I want to encourage you, when you have a chance, go online. And, uh, of course, all of our sermons and services are always there available to you. But I, I would encourage you, I think you'll find that this is going to be a very encouraging series, and last week really sets the stage for this entire series. I feel like it's one of the more important words for the year. And uh, the book of Ephesians, from start to finish, is such an encouraging word. I begin today with uh, just a thought that uh, I'm curious to, to see whether you agree or disagree, and it is it's just simply this, that it seems to me that today in American culture, we've landed at a place where the two values that I think we hold on to, maybe more than anything else, the two things that we pursue more than anything else, are to look good and to feel good. Would you agree that those are probably our two biggest values just as a culture. And when we say that, we mean it at, at multiple levels. That, that First of all, we want to look good. We, we physically w- want to look good. Everybody here this morning, you, you, I can tell you, put some thought into getting ready to come. Nobody's got a bedhead going on. Nobody's in their robe and slippers. We, we want to look good. But it's, it's not just a matter of our physical appearance, though. We put a lot into that. We invest a lot of money in the gym and in all the different things we try and do because we, we want to look good. But, but it's way more than just how we look physically. We, we want to look good to people. I, you know, I want you to have a good opinion of me. You want me to have a, a good opinion of you, right? We, we want to end up looking good in every situation, not having people think badly of us. So looking good is one of our biggest values. But then attached to it is feeling good. Yes, we, we physically want to feel good, but it goes beyond j- just that. We, we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel good about our lives. We want to feel like we've made a difference, that our life mattered, that we mattered to other people. So we, we want to look good and feel good at so many different levels. And, I mean, I, I'm going to be the first to say, I'd rather look good than bad. I'd rather feel good than bad. But the problem is... When we elevate those values above everything else, when those are the things that we're pursuing more than anything else, and the longer we live, the more you realize how elusive those two things are. Because I want to tell you, you live long enough, you're not going to look so good and you're not going to feel so good. I'm now on the north side of 50, and I'm just beginning to appreciate this a little bit more. It gets more and more challenging to get anywhere in the in the same universe as looking good. And it gets a little bit harder just to, to feel good. When those become our chief aims in life, to look good and, and to feel good, what you'll end up finding is how much life just begins to feel so futile and and meaningless and i'll tell you who will arrive at that conclusion faster than anybody else are the people who arrive at those destinations the people who end up looking good and arriving at the life that they thought would make them feel good the the people who they wind up you know however many years they have to spend in the gym and on the diet and getting the wardrobe they they look the part 
and I should feel really good now, but they don't. And so they try and lose 10 more pounds or they try and, and, and do this or that to, to look better. And they don't feel any better as a result of that. They, they realize this was an empty chase. That looking good doesn't equal feeling good. And, and that whole thing of looking good, feeling good, so much of that is tied to an image we have of what's going to look good and result in feeling good. And, and we have our own ideas about that. Like if I were to pursue this particular kind of career and have success in that, then you're going to admire me for that. You have to admire my success in this, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look good and I'll feel good. And the people who actually arrive at that destination are the ones who become the most discouraged and defeated because they realize, I've been climbing a ladder, and they get to the top of the ladder and realize, I leaned my ladder against the wrong wall. I've been pursuing what I thought would make me look good and feel good, and it doesn't. And some people will do that with relationships. It's just they, they are so bent on, if I could just find a man, if I could just find the woman, if we could just have 2.5 kids, and if they could just you know have good teeth and good grades and all this, I, I'd, boy, it's the life that looks so good, and I bet I would feel good. And you get there. And you have a spouse, and you have kids, and you have a job, and it all looks like it was supposed to look, but it doesn't feel like it was supposed to feel. And the thing that eventually begins to dawn on us is that there has to be more to life than this, than this elusive pursuit of looking good and feeling good. There has to be more purpose and meaning in life, and there is, there absolutely is, but we have to take a step back and sort of disconnect from what the culture has been saying to us and ask the question, what is life supposed to be about? How is this thing supposed to work? And so Paul is going to say some things in the second chapter of Ephesians that we're about to look at that help to point us in the right direction. And I'll just say uh, as a reminder for those of you who were here and and just a quick catch-up for those who were not, in chapter 1, it's important just to point out two or three things that you need to know setting up going into where we're going to read today. Uh, the first thing that you need to know is this is a letter to Christians. God loves everybody, but the benefits and the good things that he's going to say in Ephesians only apply to those in the family of God, those who've placed their faith in Jesus, have experienced forgiveness of sins, and now belong to the family of God. And so in chapter 1, he says you know, to the church, to those who are followers of Christ, first of all, God loves you more than you ever imagined. He chose you before you could ever do anything to pursue Him. And He has made you not just forgiven servants, but He's made you a part of His family and He's lavished His name on you. And and now He's poured all these gifts on you. It gave Him great pleasure to do this, to just lavish on you everything that belongs to Jesus. It now belongs to you. You inherit what Jesus inherits, including the Holy Spirit now living in you so that you've inherited the power that Jesus had. And he concludes the chapter by saying the result of all of this is that you are now becoming the fullness of Christ here on earth. So that we don't have to go, oh my goodness, in the middle of this crisis, I just wish Jesus were here. We get to go, praise God. He's put me here. Which is like putting Jesus here because the same spirit that filled Jesus fills me. And so wherever we go, we bring the reality of Jesus and his power and his goodness and his justice. The realities of the kingdom of God have arrived with us because Jesus' spirit lives in us. 
So it's, it's a chapter that's just full of good stuff. Now, having said all of that good, brace yourself, buckle up, because you'll get whiplash when you go to verse 1 of chapter 2 because Paul is about to pivot. He's about to, to turn this thing in a different direction as he begins the second chapter. All of this good news, just the crescendo of you are now the fullness of Christ, verse 1. And you were dead. Everybody say dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's the great irony of spiritual life. In physical life, you start out born alive and eventually you wind up dead. Spiritually, you start out dead and God makes you alive forevermore. He turns it all around and he says, you started out, every one of you, you started out dead. Dead in trespasses and in sins. Is Paul just being redundant? No, he's talking about two different things. You know what it is to trespass? I, I grew up hunting. We hunted a lot when we were kids and teenagers. My parents had a farm and my grandparents had a farm. And one of the first things my daddy always taught us was when you hunt, you only hunt on our land. There's fences around everything. The boundaries are clear. You never set foot on somebody else's property to hunt without permission on their property. That is trespassing. You never cross those lines. That's wrong. Well, that is a picture of what a trespass is. When, when you commit a trespass, it means you knew what the boundary was and you crossed it anyway. You knew I'm not supposed to go there. I'm not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to dabble with that relationship or that thing. And you just went ahead and stepped on across the line anyway. That is a trespass. He says your trespasses and your sins. You know what it means to sin? It's a different word. To sin, the, word, the Greek word hamartia, it means for an arrow to just miss the target. Here's the target we're aiming at, and the arrow goes somewhere completely off course and the thing about that term is you can do it without ever having a clue that you've done it and we've all done it countless times there are all kinds of opportunities that we ignore all kinds of choices that we make that we didn't even it didn't even cross our minds that what we were doing was wrong or was missing an opportunity but God said man here's what I wanted for you in that and you just went in another direction and it didn't even cross your mind that you were off course and he said that is a picture of the life that you used to live. Sometimes you just made up your mind, I'm going to do this. I don't care what you say the boundaries are. And you did it. And it was a reflection of how spiritually dead you were. And other times you blew it. You didn't even know you were blowing it because you were so spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses, in your sins, every one of you, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. He's talking about Satan prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them and our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Boy, in three verses, he has turned this thing around like crazy, hadn't he? I mean, we have just been told that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We've been made into the sons and daughters of God. We are the fullness of Christ. But, oh, by the way, all of you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You lived according to your own fleshly desires. You did whatever you wanted to do. And it was true of all of us. And we were just spiritually dead. <laughs> yes, it's a fact. But it ain't real encouraging, is it? 
Why is he going there? I'll tell you why he's going there. Because the good news ain't good until you know the bad news. It's not. If you think we're just all doing okay, and we're just all born so sweet and good and innocent, then you don't need Jesus. You don't need the cross. You don't need any of what we've just been talking about for the last week. And it's so easy to assume the wrong thing. Don't anybody get your feelings hurt with what I'm about to say. I, I, I love every year when we get to have the opportunity to see the little ones that God has added to our church family. And it seems by all appearances, this is just absolute innocence, the closest to perfection that you'll see in humanity, that they just already are just a part of the kingdom and the family of God. And the truth of the matter is, all of us were like that at one point, and it ain't so. We are born in sin, in need of salvation. Now, it doesn't look like it when that little baby's just all dressed up for Sunday morning, Mother's Day, and just all being good, and it just feels like everything's so right. But you give it a little time, and you see human nature come out. It starts out with the words no and mine, and you never had to teach them that. Did you not ever notice that? You, by a show of hands, how many of you taught your two-year-old to say no and mine? Nobody did. They just were born, no, no. You're trying to tell them what to do. No, no, share that. Mine. We are born rebellious and selfish. We don't have to be trained in that because sin is in the human heart from birth. We are born spiritually dead and we must be made to come alive. It's a simple reality. And if you don't believe that about little ones, raise a teenager. I have a friend who used to work with teenagers all the time. He said, in seventh grade, God just takes the human soul away for a while. <laughs> gives it back sometime later. I think there's some truth in that. I'm kidding. But it, it is Mother's Day. Every mother in the room who's been a mother for more than five minutes knows that sin and folly are bound up in the human heart. From the start, Paul's driving the point home. Then he goes on to say in verse 4, But God. That is just one of the most important phrases in all of the Bible. Here's all of our mess. But God. I'm so grateful for the but gods of Scripture. But God who is rich in mercy. You know what mercy is, don't you? Mercy is when you don't get the bad, the punishment, the pain that you do deserve. That's mercy. When you do the crime and you don't have to do the time, that's mercy. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. Now, don't get caught up in the time thing of going... How can that be that I was made alive when Christ was raised from the dead? Because I'm still 2,000 years from being born when Jesus is raised from the dead. You have to understand, God isn't bound by time and space the way that we are right now. The Lord has been all the way back to eternity past. God is fully in the present, and God has already been in the future. 
That's why when John, the revelator, when he wrote Revelation and he gets to see these visions of what is yet to be in heaven, he's getting to go where only God has been into the future. God, I mean, it, it stretches our minds to try and grasp this. God is always present in all of those places. So for God, when he is forming the universe, oh, he's already planning what he's going to do with your life. Because he's already been there. He already knows you and me intimately because you're not just a dream for him. He's already been there and done that and seen that. And so when Jesus is dying on the cross, it's not because, well, there's the possibility that when I make Jim and Beth and John and Tony, that they might screw up. Just on the off possibility that they do, I'll send you. No, I mean, God's already been there. He's already seen our desperation, how fouled up our lives are, and he knows how much we need the cross. And that's why, for God, it's all rolled together. So when Christ died, the mess that our lives are today, bound up in sin, we died with him because we've been placed in him. And when Jesus is raised up for the first time, we're made alive with Christ. So we truly did rise with him. And so he says in verse 5, God has made us alive with Christ. But he goes on to say in verse, the end of verse 5 and verse 6, You were saved by grace. Do you remember the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is you don't get the punishment you do deserve. Grace is you get all this favor, all this blessing that you don't deserve. Mercy is withholding. Grace is giving. You have been saved by what God gave you that you didn't deserve. Verse 6, He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That's an important word. You remember last week we said three parts in Ephesians. The first three chapters, the key word, sit. Chapters 4, 5, and the first half of 6, walk, which is, is just a... Uh, synonym for how we live how you walk in the world how you live in the world and then the third section the last half of Ephesians 6 stand over and over and over. stand stand take your stand against the devil and his wicked schemes sit walk stand and we said you cannot walk worthy of him in the world you can't live worthy of Christ in the world nor stand against the devil until you learn in all things to be seated with Christ. Every new thing that God calls you to begins with a new sitting down with Christ. And he has concluded chapter 1 by saying, after Jesus had done all of these things to set life in order, to bring the kingdom of God to earth, when he finished all of that, he finished his work at the cross, raised from the dead, demonstrating he's been made alive, he has now sat down at the right hand of God in heaven with all power and authority, all rule under his feet. He's in a position of rest because he has done all the work necessary to set things back in order. And now the first thing that he says for us is, and now he has seated us with Christ in the heavenlies, in this place of rest and authority. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to that. God is actually going to flex his muscle and show off his greatness through us as if we are, we are just trophies and then more. And then three of the most important verses in all of the New Testament, verses 8 through 10. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, there are at least four really important things that Paul has said in these ten verses, and I want to just take a moment to say a word about each of these. And he began with the obvious thing in the opening three verses with the, the message that we were so much worse off than we realized. That we truly started out not only separated from God, but at a place that we could not improve our condition, that there was no hope of earning forgiveness or right standing with God. And most people don't believe that. Most people don't get that. Most people imagine, if I just try harder, if I just do better, maybe I should go to church. Maybe I should, should give some things away. Maybe I should go do some, some acts of service that will make me right with God. No, 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 no. If you think that, you don't understand where we started. Paul said, let me just sum it up for you in one simple statement. You were dead. Can I let you in on something? Dead people just do one thing. They stay dead. I mean, dead people don't, don't lay in the morgue and say, you know, I think I'm going to eat better. I'm going to get in the gym. I'm going to take off some weight. I'm going to get in better shape. No! Dead people are just dead. They stay dead. And Paul said, that's where you were. There was no plan for self-improvement. The only hope you had was somebody else doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself because you were dead. We were worse off than we realized. The second thing he says is our salvation is totally about God's good works and not about ours. When we say our salvation, we're talking about going from being spiritually dead and cut off from God and living not only a life on earth, cut off from the life that we were supposed to live and the reality of who God is, but cut off for eternity from God. That means hell was the eternal destination that every single one of us were headed toward. I mean, I know that's not the popular thing to talk about today, but we're going to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. And the Word is very clear. Every human being is born on a road headed for hell. It's a very real place, a place of torment and separation. Everybody is started in that direction. And the truth is, nothing that we could do could get us off that road. But the good news is, everything that's necessary to change that and to take us from a, a place of separation headed toward misery and to put us in a place of acceptance, love, and forgiveness, a place of blessing and favor... All that's necessary to get us from here to here has been done through Christ, and it had nothing to do with you, had nothing to do with me. It's all about God's grace, God's mercy, and what God has done through Christ. And it's the point that he's making when he says, it's by grace that you've been saved. It's by grace that you've been forgiven. God, because of his great love for us, sent Jesus so that with his life of perfection that then had all kinds of pain and punishment poured out on it, that he was accepting the, the punishment that we rightly deserved. And that God accepted that sacrifice. And when he raised Jesus from the dead, he demonstrated that fact. And with his resurrection, now says, you're forgiven, and he gives to us all of the rights of 
being sons and daughters that Jesus possessed. We receive the same spirit and the same blessings that Jesus possessed. And he says, and it's not of your works lest anybody should boast. I mean, you know the reality of the matter is that the most common way that I can only really primarily speak for Americans because that's who I've interacted with the most in my life. I've spent time in, in other lands, but, but I, I can definitely speak to the American mindset on this. A fundamental question that I love to talk with people about is just the basic question of what do you understand that it takes for a person to go to heaven? Now, you can phrase that question a bunch of different ways. What, what do you understand that it takes to be forgiven or to be right with God, to go to heaven? However you want to say it. But it's the same basic question. What does it take to get that set right? I couldn't begin to count how many people I've asked this question over the last few decades. And I'll just tell you, you go out and you, you start asking people this question, I'll tell you in advance, the vast majority of people will answer that question in the same way. And, and regardless of how they word it, here's what they're painting for you. It's a picture of a balance scale, you know, where you've got two little plates suspended here. And you see, you put weights on both sides and, and, and you measure one against the other. And the picture that people will paint consistently is, well, I think in order to get into heaven, you know, you just got to do more good than bad so that your good outweighs the bad that you do in life. That's how most Americans think. That God, I mean, mo most Americans, in spite of what you may be told, the vast majority of Americans and people around the world do believe that there's a God, believe that we'll answer to God, and most of them think that God has some kind of big scales and that he's going to weigh your good against your bad. And over and over, the Bible just completely blows that idea up. It, it's really clear. If you go in thinking that it's about that, you're going to receive wages at the judgment. And the Bible says that the wages for how we live our life is death, is judgment. It goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life. Today's Mother's Day. How many of you have already gotten gifts on Mother's Day? Some of you? There's more to come? You'll, mothers, you'll leave with a gift. We love to, to receive gifts on Mother's Day. Now, in spite of how it may feel, what you have been given was a free will gift. Now, part of you is probably feeling like, you just don't know, I earned whatever I got. You may feel like that, but it's not a gift if you had to earn it. Salvation is always a gift. And he says, it's not of works, lest anybody should boast in the... New Living Translation, he says, you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. As long as we try and earn the favor of God, you don't ever get the grace of God. You don't ever get saved. And then he goes on and makes a third point in verse 10. And that is that God considers our lives to be his greatest masterpieces. The New Living Translation says, for we are God's masterpiece. I want you to think for a minute about the greatest painters that have ever lived in, in the history of the world. Think of some of the names that come to mind. Some of the ones that immediately come to mind for me would be like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci or Rembrandt or in, in more recent times Van Gogh. And for every one of those great painters, 
there is a particular work that we associate with them. Da Vinci, you automatically think the Mona Lisa. Michelangelo, you probably think the creation of, of Adam, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Rembrandt, Night Watch is the, the picture that's most associated with his name. Van Gogh, Starry Night. Those are the masterpiece works of the greatest artist the world has ever known. Now, you can't buy those things. They are such incredible masterpieces. They, in a sense, belong to the world. You, you, you want to see what Michelangelo has done with the creation of Adam? You've got to go to the Sistine Chapel and look at the ceiling. You want to see the Mona Lisa? You better plan a trip to the Louvre because you're not going to purchase that. You want to see Starry Night by Van Gogh? You've got to go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. You want to see a Night Watch? You're going to have to go to Amsterdam to, to do that. These are such incredible, priceless masterpieces. They can't be bought. Now, the interesting thing about each one of these works is when you look at them, I don't just use those as four examples, but none of them look alike at all. The style, everything about them, they're, they're so very different. But you don't look at the Mona Lisa and go, wow. I mean, I... I don't see any strokes that look like Van Gogh's work at all here. I mean, this really needs some work. We need to change this up. I assure you, we don't look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and go, my goodness, this needs some more color. This needs some more light. This doesn't look like Rembrandt. I mean, he was a master at, at using color and light in such creative ways. We don't look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and say, we need more Rembrandt in that. No, every single one of those works is an absolute masterpiece by the best in the world. Each one of them are just the, the top 1% of the top 1% at what they do. And their works that we're talking about are, uh, you know, they've done a lot of stuff, but they have these specific things that they've done that are the crowning achievement of a lifetime of work. They are masterpieces of all the things that God has ever created. I mean, think about it. We're still with the Hubble telescope and now with these even more advanced telescopes that we have we're, we're trying to see to the edges of the universe and we're discovering that there are countless billions of galaxies and within each galaxy countless billions of stars we can't begin to estimate how many planets i mean it, it's just crazy to think all that god has made i mean just what we know on earth look at the, the vastness of all that god has made the beauty of what god has formed and in all of that god says yeah i am a great artist I don't want to show you what my crowning work looks like. Look there, look there, look there, look there. These are my absolute masterpieces. You don't touch up the Mona Lisa. You, you don't go and improve the creation of Adam. They are exactly as they need to be. And when God looks at you and at me, he says, I love you the way that I made you. And as much as we may look at that and go, well, he must have lowered his standard a lot. I mean, there's a lot that I don't like about me. Part of what you have to understand is any artist, good or bad, while they're in the, the middle of doing a great work of art, it doesn't look special at all. 
I mean, have you ever worked, watched an artist work? When it's a quarter of the way done, you're going, whoo, that's a mess. What in the world? I can't even begin to imagine what that's going to be. Only over time does it take shape and you go, man, I thought that wasn't going to be anything. And it's, it's fantastic. We see, that's how it is when God works in our lives. He's not finished yet. But God has this great advantage. I mean, understand, God isn't just being optimistic when he looks at you and he says, Erica, I see a masterpiece when I look at you. Pam, I I see something that is perfection. I see Jesus when I look at you. He's not being just optimistic. Understand, he's not bound by time. He's not just looking at May 12th on 2019. He sees you today, but he sees how this whole thing is finished. He sees not just the totality of what you're going to do on earth. He sees all that you're going to do in the course of eternity when you are perfectly representing Jesus. And he says, everybody's going to agree when this is done. It's not just my opinion. Everybody that sees you is going to go, wow, masterpiece. That is fantastic. I wouldn't change anything. And in fact, what he said just a few verses earlier in what we read is he says specifically that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace displayed through us. He say, it's going to be so good what I'm doing in you. I'm just going to put you out there for the whole universe to witness what my grace has accomplished through you. Now, don't get your feelings hurt by this, but the point is not to give you strokes. It is so that he gets the glory that he is due. Your life is going to look like perfection, and God's going to get all the glory. Because we're going to look at each other, and we're going to see the incredible thing that God has accomplished, and yet we're going to know at the heart of it, don't get cocky, because we both know. We both know what a mess we were, and that every good thing now is just a picture of God's grace at work in us. You are God's masterpieces. So regardless of how you may feel about how you look or what you've done, you let yourself be defined by what God says about you. One of the greatest minds in sociology said that the way that we see ourselves is the way that we perceive that the most important person in our life sees us. That's very true. So if you think your boyfriend's the most important person in your world, the way you see yourself is the way you think your boyfriend sees you. It's the coolie looking glass concept, self-concept. He's right about that. Whoever's most important to you and how, how you think they look at you is how you tend to look at yourself. When you decide that God's the most important person in your life and you get it through your head that when God looks at you, he goes, masterpiece, perfection, that's what I was after. I see where you are, and I see where we're going with this, and it's great. Man, you will feel so differently about yourself, and it won't have to be because you achieved it. Paul, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, he's making this comparison. He's talking about how things were in the Old Testament under Moses' leadership when the people hardly knew anything about God. God's beginning to reveal himself through things like the law, and he's beginning to reveal some things about his glory and his holiness. And as a part of that process, he's taken his people, and they're in the wilderness between Egypt and the land that he promised for them. And so he's established this point of connection through this thing, literally a tent of meeting. It's a special holy place that Moses, as the representative of the people, would go on a daily basis. He would take his aide Joshua in with him. And when they would go into the tent... The glory of God that had been shrouded in a cloud that led them 
by day and night, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, representing the glory of God. And it would descend on the tent of meeting. And in that place, it's mind-boggling for us, but Moses would speak with the Lord face to face. It says, as a man would talk with his friend. I'd love to know some of those conversations. But the striking thing is, every day when Moses would leave that tent, because he had been in the presence of God Almighty, the glory of God, I mean, you realize Revelation says that the glory of God is so great, he is so radiant that there is no sun or moon in heaven, that the, the glory of God illuminates everything. Moses, when he would go into the tent, would come out and he would be glowing as if he had been <laughs> radiated or something. And so the way that they would deal with that was for a little while after he'd come out of the tent, they'd just put a veil on him. People didn't have sunglasses they could wear, and it was hard to look at his face. So they just put a veil over him for a little while after he'd come out. The longer he was out of the tent, the more the glory would fade, and after a while he could take the veil off and he'd look normal again. Paul makes the point in 2 Corinthians 3, under the old covenant, when God was just giving us just a little taste of what it's like to know him, be connected to him, the glory that gets passed on, but it's a fading glory. That's, that's how it was, but we live in a completely different age that's so much greater, and he makes the point that we don't have a glory that's fading that we just briefly come in contact with. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, So our faces are not covered by a veil. They show the bright glory of the Lord as the Lord's Spirit makes us more and more like our glorious Lord. You see, every day, if you belong to Christ... God is continuing. He, the, the paintbrush is still in his hand, and he's still adding strokes. And there's more and more of his glory that's being painted into your life and revealed through you. It's not diminishing. It's growing. And then the final point that he makes here, the final thing I'll say is this, that we are made to make a difference. He says, in Christ Jesus, God made us new people so that we would spend our lives doing the good things that he had already planned for us to do. You know, we, we tend to struggle with what's the point of life, what's the meaning of life, why am I here? It's so cool to realize that if you belong to God, God has already planned so many important things to accomplish through your life. That God didn't just see you as some random mistake, that you just happened to be the product of, of your parents getting together. Oh, no, no, no. God knew you. He planned you from eternity past. And he situated you geographically and in terms of history to put you right where he did because he planned for your life to make a difference. To make a difference in a lot of ways in a lot of people's lives. Paul, when he's talking about uh, King David, one of the most important characters in the Old Testament. He makes this summary statement in Acts 13.36. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried. Wouldn't you love for just that one line to be able to sum up your life? That when you accomplish God's purpose for your life in this generation, you could just go to sleep and go be with Jesus because you did everything that God intended for you to do to make a difference in the lives of others. God doesn't plan for you just to get by, just to make a living, just to get married, just to make babies. God plans for you to make a difference. You were made to make a difference. As I've been wrestling with that, how to try and communicate that, because I want to tell you, this is such a huge part of this series and of, of the book of Ephesians, what you were made to do. 
it occurred to me that more than trying to make a point, that it would probably help just to see a life, a life living this out. I had had this real strong impression over the last several weeks as I was preparing for this series that there was a particular person that I was supposed to seek out to share a testimony in the series, but the funny thing about it is it was somebody that I've only been getting to know over the course of the last year, and I didn't really know her testimony. And so I finally just felt so driven to do that that I called this week, and I'm trying to figure out, I don't even know the person's testimony, and I'm, I'm going to ask them to share, and I'm trying to imagine where down the line it would fit. And uh, so I called this individual this week and said, I feel like I'm supposed to ask you to share your testimony with the church, and I don't even know your testimony. So will you tell it to me? And she shared it with me over the phone. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I was thinking maybe a month from now you'd do that. I need you to share it this week. Your story is supposed to be shared this week. And she said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And so I'm going to invite Eileen Creek to come and join me here on the stage. Eileen is quickly becoming one of my favorite new people at Freedom. She's been with us for maybe a year. And uh, I just want Eileen to share a bit of how God has been mobilizing her to make a difference in the lives of others. So thank you, Eileen, for sharing. Thank you. Okay, so my name's Eileen Creek, and a little bit of my background, my mother was born and raised in Fairhope, and she was part of a huge family, the Arnold family, and some of you here may have known some of my relatives, Claude Arnold, Grace King, Elsie Butkerite. It's a huge family. And um, my mother, though, during World War II, she met a sailor from Missouri. They married, moved to Missouri, and I was born and raised in Missouri. But my whole life, I came at least once a year to Fairhope. And um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about my town in Missouri. I was raised in a little farm community, population 800. Every one of those 800 residents were white. The 99.9% of them were Protestants, and I had a very narrow, sheltered life during the time I was in Missouri. But one amazing thing did happen. My grandmother was able to arrange for our family to host a foreign exchange student. So we hosted a woman from Peru, and... Um, that began to change my life. I got interested in Spanish. I studied Spanish in high school, and then I went on to major in Spanish in college. And um, in college, for the first time, I really got exposed to how the rest of the world lives, and I was amazed. And I just became painfully aware that God had just blessed me beyond measure. He had let me be born in the United States, he gave me loving parents who cared for all my needs physically, emotionally, and they raised me in the church. So I just realized then that I needed to do something about this, that God just gave me so much grace, and I needed to give something back to those who were less fortunate. So um, that summer in 1971, I was down here in Fairhope for the summer, and I attended Fairhope United Methodist Church, and um, there a representative from Ecumenical Ministries came and told about the new program they were starting, La Casa de Amigos. And um, this was a Head Start daycare center for um, Mexican-American 
children of migrant farm workers who come to Baldwin County to harvest the potatoes. For two months, every summer, for 15 years I worked there, and it made a big difference in my life. Um, Then I volunteered to speak Spanish down there. I forgot to tell that part. I said, well, I'll come down and and see if I can volunteer down at La Casa de Amigos because I speak Spanish. So I got down there and I said hello to the nun who directed it. I said, hello, I speak Spanish and I'd like to volunteer. And she said, okay, we'd love to have you. See that row of toilets over there? Could you scrub those? (laughs) And I did, and that was my beginning at La Casa de Amigos. So over those 15 years, I did pretty much every job that there was to do there. Um, After that, I went to the Peace Corps. I served in Colombia, South America for two years. While I was there, I worked with malnourished children, and I learned about malnutrition recuperation. When I came back from there, I went to nursing school at Providence in Mobile. And when I became a nurse, then I worked at Eastern Shore Children's Clinic over here in Fairhope for 32 years. Some of you know me. From there, some of you were co-workers of mine there. Julie Bray worked with me, and her mother, Judy, was my office manager for many years. Um, At the age of 36, I was still unmarried, and I don't know why, it just hadn't happened for me, and I thought, I just can't do this without children. I can't imagine living without children. So at 36, I adopted my first child. That was Carlos. I adopted him from Guatemala. He's here with me today. He weighed 17 pounds at the age of three and a half. That's the size of a six to eight month old baby. He was severely malnourished and he'd been starving to death slowly for a long time. So my experience with malnutrition in the Peace Corps served me well and he's done well, recuperated completely. Seven years after that, I adopted my second son, Jose. He was healthy, but he was eight years old and had no education. I say he didn't even have um, Sesame Street knowledge. He hadn't heard of counting. He hadn't heard of the alphabet. And um, he moved here from a life of running in the streets and playing with all his little friends, just running a a free little life. I I thought he was kind of like a little puppy dog (laughs) the way he lived. And he came here and he found out he had to go to school every day and work all day and do homework at night, and this was a hard country to live in. It took a while. (laughs) It was a hard adjustment. And um, But he did adjust. He's done well. He lives in Fairhope. He and his wife have given me my first little granddaughter, And she's nine months old. And did I say that Carlos gave me my first two grandsons? They're here today with us. Um, So eight years after that adoption, I adopted my third son, Anthony. He's Mexican-American out of the foster care system from Texas. I adopted him when he was 13, and that did not go as well. Um, He had to overcome every kind of abuse that there is, and it's been very, very hard for him. He's 29 now, and he's living back in Texas, and he's living a life of substance abuse right now. So 
It's very hard for our family, but we are still in touch. I just saw my phone light up with a message from him, so I'm thinking he might be saying Happy Mother's Day. So we do stay in touch, and I pray for him constantly, and I know the Lord's not done with him yet. Uh, After my boys left home, then um, I started taking some mission trips, went to Honduras a couple of times in Haiti, And then my friend Mary Purvis, who lived here in Fairhope, decided to become a full-time missionary and move to Guatemala, the country my boys came from. So um, I talked to Mary and said, Mary, would you like me to get some more nurses and doctors and come down and do medical mission trips? So she was happy to have us. And for six years, I've gone with medical mission teams to Guatemala to her mission. And last year, Butch went with us. Butch wanted to go down and check out the um, mission and see if it would be appropriate to take a Freedom Church mission team down there. And he was favorably impressed. So in September, the Freedom Church team will be going to this mission where I've been working for the past six years. Um, Three years ago, I retired. So I got to spend a lot more time with my grandchildren and helping with them. But I also got to start spending a lot more time on my mission work. And for the last three years, I've lived for two months out of each year down in Guatemala working on the mission. Um, This past year when I got home from Guatemala, by chance, I happened to hear about a group of 19 Guatemalan immigrants that had just moved to Foley. They, it was December It was cold, and they were sleeping on the floor with no blankets, no mattresses. They had only the clothes on their back, 19 people in the same house. So I started doing everything I could to help them and realized pretty quickly that I couldn't do it alone. So I put on Facebook for my friends to help, and my friends came through for me, and they helped, um, especially Pat Lee from Children of the World Adoption Agency, Um, She has a vast network of people, and so her people got together. And between all of us, we were able to get them couch, table, beds, mattresses, kitchen, um, pots and pans, everything they needed for their life. And they've got jobs, and they're working, and they're doing very well. And one cute story about that is two of those men down in Guatemala in their churches down there had a praise team. And they managed quickly to get a keyboard here, but they didn't have any of the other equipment they needed. So a good friend from this church was able to provide them with speakers and a sound system, got them all hooked up. And now every Sunday evening at the Hispanic ministry at the Presbyterian Church in Foley, their praise band is playing. Also, um, the latest thing that's happened to me is... um, Mary Purvis in Guatemala sent me a message. She said, people up there have told me that there's a 16-year-old Guatemalan boy in Mobile Metro Jail. He's charged with vehicular manslaughter. Would you be willing to visit him and just encourage him? So it took a lot of work, and it took me quite a bit of time to get approved to be on his visitor list and to be able to go into the jail But I'm now visiting with him. He's since turned 17. And the first time I visited him, I found out he's a Catholic. And he told me, I didn't ask, he told me, I've confessed the wreck. 
And I've gotten to know his brother, and his brother has told me that there was no alcohol or drugs involved, but he did veer out of his lane into oncoming traffic. So he told me he had confessed that. So I was able to share with him what Jesus did for us on the cross, and that all we have to do is accept it, and our our sins are forgiven. So I, I hope that I've been an encouragement to him. Also, the newest thing I have coming up is... In October, I'm planning to go on a mission trip to the Republic of Georgia. It's a country in the former Soviet Union. And um, I'm going with a team from Christians United in Foley. The person that's facilitating this is Ann Lemus, who is also a member of this church. She's been to Georgia seven times. And she's recruited the Christians United team to go down go over to Georgia and um, we're going to work in an alcohol treatment farm where they treat alcoholic men through hard work on the farm and Bible study. That's it. That's what they've got to offer. And they're having some success. We hope to work with them, pray with them, and also hopefully take them some uh, literature from Celebrate Recovery to maybe give them a little bit um, more guidelines for working with the people with alcohol problems. Now, that's a long way to Georgia. It's a lot farther than running down to Guatemala. So it's going to be a real challenge for me, and I'm having to do a lot of fundraising because this is an expensive mission trip, and I'm I'm going to be doing a lot of fundraising, but I'm trusting that God will, will provide those funds because I feel like it's really important in Georgia People who are alcoholics are considered just the dregs of society, that they have no value and no worth. And I saw the picture of those men, and I saw their face, and they have worth in our Heavenly Father. He made them, and I just want to go help them learn that and work with them as best that I can. I wanted to share with you the verse that Mark mentioned, um, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And now from this age in my life, looking back, I can see um, the amazing preparations that God made for the good works he wanted me to do. He prepared those good works, but he prepared me. And it's amazing how he prepared my life. And I look back and I see that Out of that tiny little farm town in Missouri, God sent an exchange student. There'd never been one there before. He sent an exchange student and got me interested in Spanish. Then I learned Spanish. Then I went to the Peace Corps where I learned about malnutrition so I could adopt Carlos and help a malnourished child. And um, he was from Guatemala, so I learned about his country, took him and Jose back multiple times to visit their country. So I learned about Guatemalan culture. And my friend Mary Purvis went to be a missionary there, so I was prepared to speak Spanish and knowing the Guatemalan culture to go and be able to work beside Mary for two months each year, and it's been such a blessing. Now, God's plan for my life is extremely different than the plan I would have had growing up in Missouri. Never would I have dreamed up this plan for my life, to think that I would never be married that I would never give birth to children, but rather adopt them, that I'd travel all over Latin America and now Georgia. Um, 
I never dreamed of that, but God did. And I'm so glad that I've been able to follow God's plan for my life. And I'm very happy to be speaking to you on Mother's Day because um, I'm very happy to be able to be a mother. It's, it's just such an honor and a blessing. But until I was 36 years old, I was not a mother. And over those years, there were many, many Mother's Days that I sat through church. And they would say, well, all the mothers, please stand up. And I couldn't stand up. And they'd say, mothers, come up front and receive a a rose. I didn't get a rose. So there were a lot of years that I sat there, and I know how it feels for those of you who may be here in this congregation or may be seeing this online for women who are not mothers. I know that there are many reasons. It could be infertility issues, miscarriages, being unmarried or simply decided not to have children, but there are women who are not mothers, and your life still has meaning. God has a plan for you. He's got your good works planned, and he's planning how to get you ready to do your good works. So just as I said, sometimes the plans that God has for our life are different than what we're expecting, but I just wanted to end by saying may God give us the grace with the help of the Holy Spirit, to discern his plans for us. And may he give us the strength to be obedient to him in following those plans. Thank you. That is a wonderful story. And that is a perfect Mother's Day story. You know, there are a lot of things that we can pursue in the belief that this is what's going to make me feel good. That's where we started the day. This is what's going to make me feel good about my life and feel like I accomplished something. And being a mother, being a dad, absolutely can, can do that. It can have that effect. But I love how Eileen's story reminds me of the fact that you can't focus all of your life on one simple earthly pursuit and begin to think that you've touched all that God planned for your life. Some of us have, have chosen the noble pursuit of being a mom or a dad and letting our difference in the world be that we touched our children's lives. And the danger in having such a narrow focus is that we'd miss so many of the other things that God planned for our lives because the day's going to come when your babies are going to grow up. And there better be more to life than just being a mom or being a dad. Now, I get it. My kids are grown, and you don't ever quit being a a parent. But you realize, boy, God's plan for the difference that he wants to make, maybe it's through your children. Maybe he's not going to give you earthly children. But God has a plan for you to make a difference in this world. Now, one of the things that Eileen said when we were talking this week that really stuck with me was how God impressed on her to to begin to look for and minister to needs around her. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of why mission trips are such a big deal because I think we get deceived living in America, looking around and feeling like everybody takes care of their own business and everybody's doing well and everybody's got enough to get by. And it feels that way a lot of times in America. And the moment you go to the mission field, you get into third world countries and you realize every direction you look are people in desperate need 
and that you personally have the ability to tremendously impact and change a lot of different lives. And it's crazy how much carryover that has then when you come back home and you look around and realize, oh my goodness, there are marginalized people all around me, particularly internationals who are here and who are struggling, but lots of people around us. If you want to make a difference with your life, start looking for people with needs. And then as you're doing that, just say, God, help me to recognize the ways that you planned to make a difference through my life. I promise you, he'll show you. He'll open doors. He'll point you in directions. So I want to close with just three simple questions for you. First question is real straightforward. Have you, in light of what we talked about today, first of all, have you received God's greatest gift? Salvation, forgiveness that comes simply by faith, trusting in what Christ has done for you. Second question is this. How do you see yourself? Paul said when God looks at you, he sees his own masterpiece. What do you see when you look at your own life? And the final question is this. What are you living for? What's your life wrapped around? What wall did you lean your ladder against that you're climbing up right now? What are you seeking to chase after and pursue? Are you living to make a difference? Are you living to give God glory? Are you living to pursue happiness, looking good and feeling good? Would you join me as we together go to the Lord in prayer right now? Father, I pray that your spirit would do a fresh work among us, that you would speak to us, and that you would draw us to yourself, that you would draw us to your plan and purposes, and that you would give us eyes to see our, our lives the way that you see us. I ask you as a first question, have you received God's greatest gift in your life? Have you received God's forgiveness that brings you into the family of God? You, you don't earn it. You receive it by simply trusting in what Jesus has done for you and asking for God's forgiveness. If you've never done that, why don't you just right now pray a simple prayer from your own heart. You don't even have to say this aloud for God to hear it. Just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. And I'm asking for it today. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm asking you now to come live in me. Father, thank you for hearing and answering that prayer. Others of us just realize that when we look at our lives, maybe you don't see at all the masterpiece that God's creating. Maybe you don't see what God's purpose and plan is for your life. I guarantee you, He wants to show it to you. Would you ask God today in a fresh way to begin to give you a glimpse of how He sees you? And to recognize the purpose and calling that He has for your life. God, I pray that in a fresh way for the lives of people in this room, people watching and listening online, that your calling, that your plan, that the good works that you've purposed for us, that you'd begin to reveal those things, that you'd begin to show us needs and opportunities, and that you'd just pour out your life and your love through us. We welcome your work, and we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. 
You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.